0: Hey everybody, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com. Today I'm taking your questions on buying a used Volkswagen 10,000 mile oil changes, shifting subframes, and more. This is episode 37 of the Humble Mechanic podcast. We are going back to episode 37 for the audio-only version today, and I'm going to be taking about seven of your questions. As I'm looking through the notes of the question, I'm noticing that I put some links to some camera equipment that I use in order to create the video show on YouTube, but I've actually upgraded a lot of equipment since then, so understand that if you click these links and go to these things that I I link to, that'll be over on the blog at HumbleMechanic.com, this is some of the older stuff that i use if doing a show about the new stuff the things that i'm currently using right now is something that interests you guys do me a favor swing over to the blog episode 37 and let me know that you'd like to know about that and i can put that together for you real quick before we get into the show if you guys like what humble mechanic is about want to keep the show going you can check out the crew membership program it's a great way to help support me and the show and the work that i do for you guys but more importantly, score yourself some awesome discounts to places like Black Forest, Eastwood, MT Knives, Sonic Tools, Mycanic, s Automotive, and more. These discounts, if you're buying stuff for your European car, are going to pay for the whole crew membership even if you're not buying stuff for Euro cars, there's a lot of other really great discounts out there. Swing over to HumbleMechanic.com, click the crew member benefits tab at the top, and that will tell you all the really awesome stuff that you do get. In addition to that, you get downloads of the VW Audi training manuals that I write for the classes that we teach. These used to be 355 bucks a pop to attend the class. They're actually raising the price next year to almost $400. So you're getting those included as a crew member. If that's not your flavor, I set up a Patreon for you you Guys asked me to set the Patreon up so you can throw a buck or two over that way. Some pretty cool stuff happening over there. If none of that works out for you, simply clicking my Amazon links, checking out the recommended tools list that I have at the bottom of every page, going to Amazon, buy what you're gonna buy anyway, or buy the tools that I'm talking about. And that I get a little credit for that. That super helps out with keeping the show going. Remember, if you want to get a question on a show like this, be sure to email me, Charles at HumbleMechanic.com, put question for Charles in the subject line. Ask your question right at the top of the email and then give me some space, then give me the details. That helps me out so much when I'm looking through the information to actually know what your question is. Say something like, hey, Charles, my question is XYZ and then give me the details of, of all the other information. That helps out so much. Try not to beat you guys up about it, but it really does make it a lot easier for me to actually answer the question that you have. So with all that wrapped up, let's travel back in time almost three years ago and listen to episode 37 of the show. First up, Joe asks, hey man, do I have any VW buying tips? Buying a used jet or a golf and don't want to miss anything? Love the channel, by the way. Thanks, Joe. All right, um, yeah, my big Volkswagen buying tip is if you don't know what you're looking for, please, 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 take it to somebody that does. This is a question that I get asked all the time. You know, I'm looking at one of two cars. What do I buy? Honestly, I don't know. I'm not looking at the car, so I can't tell you which one to buy. I can tell you that traditionally, if you're looking between a B5 Passat and an A5 Jetta, um, you're probably going to have more problems with the Passat. One, they're older, and two, those those cars were uh, pretty intense on repair um, repair costs. So now, trust me, I drive one, I know. Depending on the generation of Jetta, uh, suspension bushings are really common, axle boots are really common, oil leaks are common. Of course, you always wanna look at maintenance things, but Joe, honestly, man, if you don't know, please take it to somebody that does. I always recommend taking it to the dealer for stuff like this. I know a lot of you guys are pretty hard on dealerships and uh, some of them have earned their reputation, but um, you know, they, they know the cars really well. Or if it's an independent European shop, please take it there. Just get someone to put their eyes on it. That's really familiar with that that generation of Volkswagen, and uh, you know, don't get taken advantage of. It's worth hundred dollars now. If you're buying a thousand dollar car, so what? It'll be what it's going to be. But if you're spending, you know, four grand up please take it somewhere that knows what they're, they're looking at and have them do a full inspection. We call it a used car pre-purchase inspection, but you don't want to just wing it and, and guess wrong or something like that. So good question. And again, please take it to the dealerships. Next up, Hey Charles, in your time-lapse video, you mentioned evacuating oil from the new 1.8 turbos. I assume you're talking about the one with a plastic oil pan. Why do I do this at our shop? Our mechanics don't do that. Lucas Z. That's actually not the one with the plastic oil pan. That's the two liter GTIs and the Golfs. Uh, Actually, I think the 1.8 Turbo Golf has a plastic oil pan too. Maybe it's the diesel. Anyway, so far I've only seen plastic oil pans in the Golf. Even though on that specific vehicle, which was a Passat that I was using the evacuator on, I bought it because of those plastic oil pans. When I first seen that, I was very concerned about mostly the longevity of using just a like a quarter turn drain plug in a composite pan with an o-ring holding the, the oil in basically. So far they've proven to be okay as uh, as maintenance goes. I'm still very concerned about it, very leery about it. But I did find that that evacuator works incredibly well on the 1.8 turbos, the newest generation, as well as that newest generation of 2.0-liter turbo. On the older 2.0-liter turbo, the one that everybody calls the TSI, it's okay, it's all right in the FSI. Um, it works pretty good on the diesel. I should do a review of this thing um, for you guys uh, because it's actually a great tool to have. The older stuff, I've never tried. A lot of older cars, the uh, oil filters on the bottom, and if I have to put it up in the air anyway for uh, for doing an oil change, there's no point in me using the evacuator. The oil pans on the one I was using it on can be a little finicky with the uh, crush washer, so I like to do it on those. And don't worry, guys, the car still goes up in the air for an inspection and a tire rotation specifically on that one. I'll put a link to that, um, the evacuator that I'm talking about, if you guys haven't seen it in the time lapse, uh, in the show notes. It's a great little tool. I like it for like 120 bucks or whatever. I recommend it. Definitely not something you need, but something that's worth having. It. All right, next up, Ryan asks, I would love to see a video or blog post on what camera slash production equipment I use in my video. Oh, uh, I think they're great quality. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that, man. <laughs> um, just curious what I use. Okay, so quick rundown. I use an EOS Rebel T3i camera, um, which is a DSLR. It's not really even a video camera, but it shoots really good video. Uh, there's a little quirk with it where I only shoot up to 12 minutes of video. I guess that has to do with the uh, the amount of data that it's storing at one time. Uh, it's on a Sunpak Ultra Pro 423 tripod, which is mediocre. The, uh, it's got a, like a pistol pan head on it that I don't really like. It's kind of weak, um, but it's fine. I start and stop all the videos with this little Canon remote. Um, actually just figured out that I can also focus the camera with the remote as well as start and stop video. So if you ever see me, like, kind of doing this, it's because I have this remote in my hand. Um, I think the best two things I've done to improve video quality is all around here, there's lighting. Uh, I got a light here, a light here, and a light right, light right above. <laughs> um, so that you can really see me or what I'm talking about. It works really well for the um, the failed parts videos. I also use a microphone, which, let me dig it out here, is an Technica Omni Mic ATR 3350. Um, it was like a $30 microphone. It's kind of a pain in the butt because it's a really long cord, but I think it records really well. Uh, and it's just a little lapel mic right here. Um, I like it, I use uh, Cyberlink video editor, which is pretty good, not great. I think there's some better editors out there, but for the budget that I have for uh, for editing these videos, it's about the best I can do. I do plan on upgrading the audio. Um, one of the negatives of recording with this EOS Rebel camera is for some reason in the software of the camera, the gain is shot way up. So if I just record without editing, it's very scratchy sound. You'll notice like early in the show, Um, the audio was really scratchy and there was a ton of background noise. Actually, thanks to uh, Jason from Engineering Explained for pointing that out to me because I never heard it. Um, so I actually run it through an editor and clean all that up. But I'm actually looking for something with a little bit better sound. Um, so I'll probably switch to a, uh, standalone audio recorder at some point. But that's like 400 bucks that I don't really want to spend right now since I think this is doing a pretty good job, um, of that. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, I'm out here in the garage. Um, i sort a screenshot up of what, what it looks like sort of, uh, from behind the camera. Uh, for a while I had my wife helping me focus the camera, but ever since I figured out I could do it with the remote, uh, thank you, YouTube, uh, I've just been able to fly solo on it, which is really cool that I don't have to bother her to help me all the time. So, uh, yeah, man, great question. Really appreciate you. Uh, you're, you wondering about that. That's cool. Um, hopefully that helps. If you got any other questions about the production or what I do, um, go ahead and post it in the comment section. I'll be more than happy to answer them, but I got a pretty simple setup, at least as simple as I can have. So next up, Jeff, who snuck in like eight questions. So I'm going to pound through these and see what I can get for you. A couple of things you wanted to do, talk to me about for Monday's show. First, what's my opinion on the engine oil service being at 10K um, on the TSI? All right, Jeff, I've talked about it a couple times before, but oil, no problem. It holds up fine, filter, Eh, it's okay. Um, I've seen some filters in the two fives that are really brittle after 10,000 miles. We got to remember that a lot of us in the automotive enthusiast world take really good care of our cars and are very dedicated on point with our services. If it's at 10,000, we do them at 10 or nine, but a lot of people aren't that way. So they'll take a 10,000 mile service and push it to 12. Well, every, every time you push it out further and further, um, you, you know, open the door for more issues. There's also the things that aren't oil related, such as brakes and tires and things like, like that. Now we're stretching out the time that these things are inspected. So uh, you know you could have an issue where, let's say with your brakes, at you know your 40,000 mile mark, maybe you have four millimeters, which is a good amount of brake pad left, and you go 10,000 or 11,000 miles. Well now in the meantime, your pad is cut into the rotor, where if that were every five, we could have replaced the pad, resurfaced the rotors, saved you a bunch of money on, uh, on a brake job. So good question. And that's a question I'll probably always answer no matter how many times I get it. He's got a couple more here. Uh, that's specific to his car. Jeff, I'll, I'll answer you that one too. Um, a while ago, he had asked me about shifting of the subframe and if that's a common problem. What seems to happen is early on in the A platform, like the A5 and B6 platform cars, we found that the torque wasn't right on the suspension bolts. So what we would do is you just get a big old breaker bar and crank down on them and tighten them up. And that would stop any you know forward and back shifting of the subframe. Those, bush- those bolts are technically supposed to be replaced every time they're loosened. So if you have to loosen that for an alignment to shift the subframe, they are supposed to be replaced. They are torque to yield bolts. I promise you that very few get replaced during that kind of thing but by the Volkswagen book, they're definitely supposed to be replaced. There's also other things that can cause subframe shifting, but the most common one that I've found is uh, those bolts being a little looser than maybe they should be. And you know, there's times to pay very close attention to torque specs, especially on torque to yield, but I have found that if you go in with a wrench and or a ratchet and really tighten them down a little bit more, um, that, that shifting will go away. Good, that's a good question though. Next, he asked me, um, what do I need to do after changing a battery? I mentioned that I may have to set the anti-pinch. I think I mentioned that in another video. Can I show how to do that? That really depends. Um, And he also asked, what else do I need to do in replacing the battery? So set your clock, um, set pinch protection. And that's really it on the more modern ones. And he drives a 13 GTI, so on your car, that's all you got to worry about. If the battery is unplugged for a really long time, you may need it radio code, but that's very, 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 very infrequent. So on your car, Jeff, to set the pinch protection with the driver's door open, double tap the unlock button on the remote, then hold the driver's window button down, that'll lower all the windows, and then double tap the lock, the unlock button and hold the driver's window button up, and that'll raise all the windows. That's the easiest way on your car. Or if you replace the battery with the windows up, it doesn't usually lose pinch protection. On cars like my Passat, which is a 2005, you can take the key in the door handle and rotate it all the way, you know, lower the windows by turning it one way and then raise all the windows by turning it the other and that'll reset the pinch protection. But yours has pinch protection on all the windows. That's just one thing to check after you replace a battery and uh, make sure that your windows auto up and auto down. If they do that, your pinch protection is set and you're good to go. Great questions, man. Jeff always sends good questions, so keep on sending them, Jeff. I appreciate it. All right, Don said, oh, so Don is the one that asked me last week about the WRX versus the Golf R. I'm very happy to say that he chose the Golf R. Don, that's awesome, man. I'm very excited about it. Um, I'm fully expecting you to post some pictures of it on the Facebook page, and uh, I'd love to share that with everybody, so I'm super excited for your Golf R and I know the folks at Subaru are probably really sad, but they'll get over it because the Golf R is awesome. All right, Kevin asks, two short questions. I'm going to buy a set of triple square bits to work on my car. What size triple square are most used on VWs? He's got a 12 Passat. And are triple square fasteners everywhere or just certain places like suspension areas? Okay, um, great question. So a triple square uh, is just a specific kind of bit that uh, Volkswagen uses a fair amount of, and there's actually, they're all over the car, Kevin. Um, I know the door latches have a small triple square. If it's a diesel, it's got triple squares. The rear brakes, the, the bolts that hold the caliper carriers, um, those use triple square. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. Um, some transmission bolts are triple square. Uh, In the suspension, there are triple squares. Usually the the bolt that holds the knuckle to the uh, the strut is a triple square. I think the rear wheel bearing bolt might be a triple square. Anyway, they're all over the car, so good call on buying a set. Um, The most common sizes are 6, 8, 10, 12, and 14, and 16, and 18. Um, I think that's pretty much the full array on that specific car. I can tell you that 6, 8, and 10 are the sizes that I keep in my roll cart, so those are probably the most common ones. Like the bolt that holds a steering wheel on is a 12. Um, so that's not a very common one. But um, I think it's VIN makes a really good set that I use a lot of. I'll, put a, I'll try and find a link to it for you, Kevin, and put that in the show notes. And it has the whole set. It's, it's a little set of all of them. And uh, I actually recommend those. I've been using it for years and years and years, and I've never broken one, <laughs> at least not yet anyway. So good question, Kev. Thank you for that. Sorry, Kevin, I called you, Kev. I got a buddy named Kevin, and I I always call him Kev. So, Kevin, I'm sorry about that. Um, Brian asks, hey, Charles, excellent on the videos. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate that. The GTI water pump episode was his introduction to Home Mechanic podcast and hooked ever since. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Uh, Many GTI owners on uh, GolfMark6.com have commented about black soot on the exhaust tips being normal. So, he's got a couple questions about exhaust, um, soot on the exhaust tip. Is it truly normal for a stock car? Is a black soot uh, symptomatic of a rich condition? Fuel not being burned? And would upgrading to a stage one tune reduce or eliminate the soot problem by making a better air fuel ratio? Honestly, I don't want to say it's normal, but it's common. Um, pretty much all of the two liter turbos seem to have that soot built up on the exhaust tip. And it could very well be a a product of a slightly rich condition. The thing we got to remember on, you know, the modern day tuned cars, and he specifically mentions uh, PZEV, which is partial zero zero emissions, or uh, PLEV, which is partial low emissions. These cars are designed to run leaner than richer. So if you're going to have a condition, it's probably more likely a lean condition rather than a rich condition. Um, my guess, depending on mileage, is probably oil coming through the uh, the combustion chamber and out the exhaust and then sort of catching on the uh, on the tips of the tailpipe. Um, It does seem to be very common, though, and um, I'll tell you what I'll do, Brian. I'm going to look around and and pay a little bit closer attention over the next couple weeks and maybe come back and talk to you about it. I might even reach out to uh, a contact of mine at Volkswagen and see if he has any insight to that because that's actually something I'm curious about, too. Um, Really good question. And as far as the tune, I don't think it would eliminate the soot problem. It will change your air-fuel ratios, but I don't think it it will alleviate any soot. In fact, it'll probably run richer, but maybe that will. I don't, I don't really know, man. That's a, that's a question that I really don't have a full answer to, but it's a really good one. <laughs> um, so I'm going to reach out to some people and, and ask around and see if I can get you a better answer than I just gave you, because the truth is I really don't know 100% for sure. I will say that one thing may um, affect that. You might want to look at what kind of fuel you're using if you're using um, you know, mid-grade maybe try cleaning the exhaust tips and running a tank or two of premium just to see how that works out. Luckily, gas is pretty cheap right now. I think it's under two bucks a gallon where I'm at. Um, so now might be a really good time to run that test and see if you get any improvement in uh, in that or or whether it's still run, it still does just the same thing. But man, Brian, great question. Thank you. All right. Jacob asks, uh, he's got a Mark 1 Caddy pickup and I want to do something fun with it but I also want to be friendly with the wife and her needs. Uh Jacob, you are a smart man, my friend. Excellent, excellent choice. She can't drive stick and she's not that great. Ooh, Jacob. <laughs> so she can't drive stick shift. Um and we'll we'll leave it at that. I don't want to get Jacob in trouble. Jacob says that he loves you very much and you're an incredible person. Um so you want basically what <laughs> what he wants to do is uh Is put a more modern engine in his cabbie, uh, excuse me, his caddy pickup truck, pretty much do an interior swap. Um, He likes the VR6 option, but it might be more expensive. Maybe a 1.8 turbo with an automatic. Point is, he has never seen anyone do an engine swap with an automatic transmission. Okay, so the Eurowise kit is built for a manual transmission. I don't know if it will work with an automatic. Um, And he even says nobody really does automatic swaps. That's really true. Most people that are doing engine swaps are doing them for um, you know, a really sport type idea or an enthusiast idea. And honestly, most of us auto enthusiasts don't love automatic transmissions. Um, man, I, I think you should probably scrap the project and just send your caddy over to me and let me have it. And I'll put a cool engine in it and just keep it. <laughs> but uh, of course, Jacob, I'm kidding. Unless you really want to do that, then, then definitely send it. Um, that's that's a really good question. I would probably poke around in VW Vortex uh, and see if anybody's done it. I think a 1.8 turbo with an automatic could be a really fun swap, and that's a whole lot of power upgrade in a uh, in a caddy pickup. Um, you can also look at like an ALH automatic swap. I know automatic Jetta diesels are beginning to be pretty affordable, and because uh, most everybody that's buying diesel now wants an a manual transmission, especially a four-engine swap, you might be able to score an uh, an automatic Jetta pretty cheap and try and do the swap. This would be at like an uh, out of an A3 platform Jetta. That would probably be the most bolt in. Um, let me reach out to Mike from Eurowise or uh, one of the boys over there and ask them their thoughts on it, and maybe uh, maybe I can get him get an answer for you a little bit more specifically. It probably would take a fair amount of fabrication. I know there's a lot of guys doing eight turbo swaps in that generation vehicle. And um, I think Eurowise actually does make a engine mount for that. Um, but as far as the transmission goes, man, I, I don't know. But um, I think you should do it. I think it's very cool. And uh, if you do it, you know, let me know, and and I'd love to I'd love to post pictures of it on the blog or on uh, on the Facebook page, guys. Wow, <laughs> I feel like these two in a row, last two in a row. I don't really have great answers for a couple of things you want to consider when it comes to the automatic transmission is what's going to happen with wheel speed um, depending on what transmission you use. That's going to be really important. You're eliminating ABS, so that eliminates that. I, if I were going to do, here's, you know what, I'll tell you what I would do, Jacob. If I were going to do an automatic engine swap, I'd probably do an ABA with an automatic transmission out of a car that didn't have ABS. And uh, that would be like a, I don't know, a 96 Golf, a Cabrio would probably be a really good one. Um, I think that's going to be the easiest swap for you to do. And it'll limit, basically, the newer the vehicle gets, the more sensors and inputs you have to worry about, you know, if you had to do any of that, you would, um, you'd need to have all that stuff coded out. So, great question, Jacob. Thank you for getting your wife involved, man. That's really cool. Good, good looking out for her. That's uh, as a husband myself, that's a really good choice to keep mama happy. Um, but keep us posted on what you do, man. If if you uh, if you get a plan together and uh, want want my advice on it. Just fire me another email or, uh, you know, if you wind up starting out on it, post it up on the Facebook page so that uh, that we can all follow your progress on it. So, good good question, man. Next up, Alan says he's got a Mark 1 Jetta and he's got trouble with first gear and reverse gear, but the synchros are okay. What can it be? All right, Alan, good question. Um, That's a tough one to answer without knowing more. Um, A problem with first gear in reverse, you know, I don't really know what that means. Is it that it doesn't go into first or reverse? It doesn't come out of first and reverse. The transmission doesn't engage first and reverse, even though the shifter will go into first and reverse. Initially on on this question, and this sort of comes from me dealing with some shifter issues from the cabbie, it's probably a shifter adjustment. Um, This is a Mexican Jetta. So I assume it's the same as the cabbie. Um, it's probably an adjustment either, you know, on the transmission or on the shifter. I don't really know without looking at it. I know as the, the generations evolve, um, and on my cabbie specifically, I had a lot of problems getting the shifter adjusted to where I could get it into reverse uh, you want to make sure that all of the bushings in the shifter are good, both in the shifter and at the transmission. If they're not good, you want to rebuild all that stuff. I think Euro, Euro something, Euro Tuning um, sells rebuild kits for the with all the bushings in it. Um, it's one that I had looked at on the cabbie before I did the engine swap because it was that shifter was flopping all around. That that that's kind of what my gut says is that you got either a bushing worn out or missing. Or an adjustment that's out, and uh, you want to start with that. But start with a really good visual inspection before you just start slapping parts on it, and uh, you know, really, really take a good look at it, and uh, and go from there. And that actually brings me to a really good point about um, diagnosing cars and, and looking vehicles over and trying to figure out what's going on with your car before you replace any parts, unless it's obviously bad. So. If your tire's flat and there's a shiv sticking out of the side of the, the tire, replace the tire. Um, but if you're having a problem with like the vehicle starting or you know making a weird noise or anything really, do a little bit of initial diagnostic first. And that usually starts off with a really good visual inspection. And a lot of times it's hard to know, okay, this is good, this is bad, just by looking at it but I'll tell you that just shining a flashlight on a part sometimes can give away what's going on. If you have, let's say, a fault for a coolant temp sensor and you shine your flashlight down on it and the wires are broken, well, there may not be a need to put a sensor in it because the wires are broken. So, um, you know, when it comes to vehicle diagnosis, really start with a good basic visual inspection. And hey, if you don't know what it's supposed to look like, um, a really good tip is to hop on a website that sells parts Hop on deutschautoparts.com and check the check out the picture of what the part's supposed to look like, and see if what you have going on looks just like that. And if it doesn't, well, you know, you may have a problem with the part. If it does, keep looking. Follow the harness back through the uh, through the engine bay, or you know, up through the wheel. Well, whatever whatever you're looking at, but but do some initial initial diagnostic and visual inspection before you just go place replacing parts. Um, it's it's one thing that I see and hear about a lot where you know, I'll get an email saying, hey, I got uh, this problem with the car. I've replaced these 10 parts and it's still doing it. Well, you know, some of those parts may have needed to be replaced for maintenance, but this part's not going to really cause the vehicle not to start or, you know, not to engage first gear. You know, you wouldn't want to put just a slap a transmission in a car before you, uh, for not going into first gear before you uh, did some visual inspection and checked it out. So, Alan, not, I'm not picking on Alan at all. This is this is a really good question, and again, I would start with a visual inspection on the bushings. But that's just in general. And that's for you know the the DIY folks, the really novice folks, the professional folks that sometimes act like dummies and uh, <laughs> and don't do visual inspections um, before they just go you know ripping things apart. Take a minute, take a breath, shine your flashlight on it, and take a really good look at what's going on, and use your brain a little bit. You know, you may not be an automotive repair expert, but a lot of times you don't have to be. A lot of times just a simple visual inspection and thinking about what's going on will really lead you in the right direction and get you guys where you wanna be. So good question, Alan, thank you for that. And thanks for setting me up with a way to sort of talk about that. Cause that's, it's been something that's been on my mind a little bit lately and uh, I wanted to make sure I brought that up in a show. And, And Alan gave me a road to do that. So guys, thanks so much for hanging out. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you hanging out with me. Remember those links to the equipment. That is the stuff that I used to use. I've actually upgraded my camera a little bit, Uh, very similar camera, but just the camcorder version upgraded audio big time that's really been the big upgrade and i do have a new tripod so i still actually do use that t3i camera uh, quite a bit i just picked up a new lens for it which has been a lot of fun to play around with if you guys dig the audio only version of this show do me a favor swing over to your favorite podcasting platform whether it's itunes or stitcher or any of the other ones and if you can leave it a review if you think the show's worth five stars awesome make sure you put that down if you think it's worth something else that's awesome too either way i appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your day and leaving that review all right guys with all that thank you so much for listening and i will see you next time